morning. Good morning. How are we this morning? Are we well? Everyone doing good? You guys are lively. I was like, yeah, so dancing going on in worship. You guys are going for it. I need to send you up our way to teach us some lessons, I think. Good morning. I'm going to start this morning with a joke that very loosely relates to today's talk, but it's my favourite joke in the world, so I'm going to start with it. <clears throat> How did the Parisian baker escape from jail? He put French pancakes on his feet and crept right past the guards. Yes, come on. We we are we are we are diving right back into the same passage that we were on uh, last week because there's just so much good stuff in it and a whole bunch of us have prepared talks on it and we thought let's just get the most out of this passage. So we're talking today about a man who didn't have to creep out of a tomb. He was raised to life in the most obvious and extraordinary way. And so today we're picking back up again. It's Mark chapter 16, verse 1 to 8. And this morning I want to talk about expectations. When you came here this morning to church, this may have been your first week in church ever. It may have been your 5,000th week in church. I don't know how old that would make you. What's 550? Maybe like 100 or something like that. I don't know. But what are your expectations for church? What are your expectations for a relationship with Jesus? And what are your expectations for what he can and will do in this community that you call home. We're going to be looking at expectations this morning. And so we're going to read Mark 16, 1 to 8 together, and then we're going to dive right into that. Um, if you need a Bible, there are a couple of Bibles at the front here. Christine will be the Bible monitor. If you would like a Bible to read along with you, you just pop your hand up. She'll make sure one gets to you. Um, but it's Mark chapter 16, verse 1 to 8. And the passage is entitled, Jesus has risen. God, would you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear and see the richness and the depth and the wisdom and the encouragement and the challenge that is in this passage before us this morning. We want to, like a sponge, wring every bit of moisture out of it, Lord, to sustain us and push us out into this coming week. Amen. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And I love this moment, this moment when these three ladies arrive at a tomb, to expecting to dress a dead body, expecting to perform a religious task, expecting to tick a box and sort of finish a chapter of their life that they were distraught was ending. And suddenly they realise this was just the first few sentences of the first part of the rest of the book. He is alive. He is risen. He is not here. Suddenly, what looked like the worst defeat in history became the most extraordinary and important victory that the human race would ever know or see or experience. He has risen. 
he is not here. But before these women discover the fact that Jesus is alive, they're already walking to the tomb with a very different expectation. Their expectation is very different from the reality of the situation. These women had watched Jesus be beat within an inch of his life. They'd watched him dragged before a mock court. They'd watched him accused of things that he had never done. They'd watched him um, beaten again. They'd watched him have to drag a cross through the streets of Jerusalem. They'd watched a crown of thorns forced upon his head. They'd watched him put on a cross and crucified. Then they'd watched him stabbed in the side with a spear to make sure that he was dead. They'd watched him brought down from the cross. They'd watched his body taken out of town. They'd watched him put in a tomb. They'd watched a troop of Roman soldiers roll a large stone across the entrance. And then they watched guards stand outside to make sure nobody could interfere with the tomb. Of course, their expectation was death. Of course, their expectation was that they would arrive and find Jesus' body in a tomb, ready to have a religious act performed upon it. But they'd forgotten that Jesus had said, on the third day, I will rise. I don't know if you've ever found yourself going into a situation with really low expectations. I imagine Ali's next curry with the family would have been one of those situations where he was like, I am going to play the ball low here this time. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. When I was younger, um, my friend invited me to go along to his little girl's dance show. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a dance show before. My expectation of a dance show was, was that um, my friend's little girl would sort of bumble around stage in a ballerina's outfit for maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, and then that would be it over. We'd all have teas and coffees. We'd clap. We'd pretend like it was the most extraordinary dance that anyone had ever seen. And then we'd all go home happy. No, 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 no. Two hours in, uh, we had our first intermission. I thought it was the end, but it was the intermission, at which point I'd seen my, my friend's little girl for approximately four minutes, I think, out of the two hours that were there. Every uh, single person and every single age group and every single class had come on and performed some sort of routine. I genuinely thought, I've never done this in my life before, but I genuinely thought about cracking the fire alarm. I was very, very close to doing it. Four hours later... The event finished. I think I'd seen my friend's little girl for about 15 minutes throughout the total of the four hours. I was so utterly bored. It was absolutely torture. It was even worse than I could have imagined. For these women, though, it is infinitely better than they could ever have expected or imagined. They're expecting to turn up and perform this religious ritual almost sort of um, preparing the body for the passing on into the next place. They're expecting to find a dead body there and put these spices on it and make it right. And so they, they probably don't want to be there. I don't know about you. I don't think at any point I would ever be excited about going to see a dead body uh, and putting spices on it. They're probably not wanting to be there, but they feel the, 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 the pressure that somebody has to do this. Somebody has to go and perform this religious act on Jesus to make sure that he's right. But instead of finding death, they find that life has burst out of the tomb. And maybe for some of us here today, this is the first time we've ever been in church. Or maybe you've only been around for a few weeks, I don't know. Maybe you're here because a friend dragged you along, or maybe because your parents used to go to church, or maybe because, you know, around Easter time, it's probably one of the two times a year where you can tick the calendar and say, you know, I've been at church, I've done my bit. Maybe you're expecting to come here today and find 
a boring church with boring people and boring songs uh, and no life and death. Maybe that's what your expectation is of church. Maybe your expectation is that it's full of rich tea biscuits and weak tea and people who like to complain about things and actually people who can't agree on anything. That's often the picture of church that's presented to us, isn't it? It's a boring, outdated, dead place. Only go if you absolutely have to. Can I tell you something though? I absolutely love the church. And I absolutely love this church. And one of the joys of being a pastor in this church is I get to see all the many ways, the extraordinary ways that this church is not dead, not even close. This church is alive and full of life and making a transformational impact in the communities where we meet. As a pastor, I get to watch people uh, finding healing and restoration through the friendship and prayer of the people around them. I find this church to be a place where uh, people who have loads of money and people who have no money at all sit down for lunch together and share wisdom and life advice with each other. I find it a place to be where there's no guest list, there's no VIPs or important people, that everyone's the same, everyone gets to play, everyone has a part and a place to bring and seeing the kingdom come in this land. I've watched people uh, like John who've been kindly and lovingly walked from debt into a place of financial freedom and the impact and the change that that's made in his life. I've watched people at the very lowest point of mental health have people come and visit them in Cornhill and love them and bring them food and hang out with them and just be there with them until uh, that moment comes where it just doesn't feel quite as low as it once did. That is the church. You know, these women expected to go and perform a religious act in a dead place. And I think so often for people coming to church feels like coming to tick a religious box in a dead place. But that's not the truth. The expectation doesn't match the reality because the reality is the church is alive and well. In Acts chapter 2, uh, we're told a bit about the very early church. And I guess this is where, where we should be looking to in terms of what should church look like? You know, the church that immediately followed Jesus' life and death, the very first sort of churches we know, what should it look like? And it says this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Maybe like the ladies in the passage, you came here today with the expectation of fulfilling a religious task. And maybe like them, what you're finding is unexpected life. Shocking generosity and undeniable goodness. If that is the case, guess what? You can come back next week and you can come back the week after that. In fact, you can call this place home and never have to pay a mortgage on it in your life. You are so welcome here. This church is alive. And we would love you to call it home. So there's an expectation of church that it's maybe a dead place. Secondly, what is our expectation of Jesus? When we read this passage, what is our expectation of Jesus? Why can we expect our lives to be transformed 
by the fact that Jesus has been crucified. And it's this, he didn't stay crucified. The tomb was empty. The ladies in our passage today came fully expecting to find death. And, and what, they, what they actually found was an empty tomb. I don't know about you, I don't expect to find a tomb or a grave empty when you dig it up or open it up. You expect to find a dead body in there, the remains of a person who once was. But what they find is life. He is risen. He is not here. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Just maybe even close your eyes. Imagine you are one of those three ladies and you're walking towards that tomb knowing what's happened the three days previous to it. You know, you're walking towards the tomb. You can't quite see it yet. You've got the spice and you're ready to go and anoint Jesus' body, perform the religious act that needs to be performed, tick the box and make sure his body's right for this next part. And you're talking to each other. And imagine the conversation was going along the lines of, what on earth are we going to do next? We thought he was the Messiah. Now he's dead and the disciples are nowhere to be found. They're hiding. And what what have this last three years of our life been about? And what's going to happen to us now? And who's going to roll away the stone so we can even get in and do what we need to do? And then suddenly they round the corner towards the tomb and they see that the stone is ro- the stone is rolled away and you can imagine if it was me I would have been skeptical my first thought wouldn't have been oh brilliant Jesus is risen I would have been like who's done something here somebody's tampered with us who's been in here and done something what have they done and so they rush in and they find this uh, man sitting in white that the general consensus of the theologians is that it's an, an angel it's an angelic presence uh, and, and it says, they were alarmed. I imagine that I would maybe be slightly more than alarmed. Alarmed feels like a mild version of just absolutely terrified. And then he just says to them, he's like, oh guys, don't, don't be alarmed. It's okay. Uh, are you looking for Jesus? Oh, that's a bit awkward. You've actually just missed him. Um, uh, but he said he's going to head to Galilee. So if you head on there and tell the disciples, let them know that he's on the way, that would be great. This is a game-changing moment. This moment right here changes everything for these women. The game has completely changed. Sarah um, went away for a weekend recently to visit her dad uh, and took the kids with her and left me at home on my own. Um, And uh, this is what I looked like after two days. Uh, That was me. (laughs) I was surviving on uh, fish caught from a local river uh, and I'd befriended a volleyball um, who I called uh, Spalding uh, just for the sake of originality. Uh, but a few of us in church, we somehow it convened that all of our wives and girlfriends were away on the same weekend. Um, and so on the Sunday at church, we were like, we, we should help each other out here. Like, what, what can we do? Will we all just club our resources together and we'll make something. So we all gathered together and we made this massive pot of macaroni cheese, which is basically like the easiest thing you can ever cook when somebody's not there to cook for you. So we made this big pot of macaroni cheese and we all sat down. We took ages making it. It was really lovely, actually, a really nice time hanging out together. And we sat down and as we sat down, uh, one of the drummers in our worship team, a guy called Andrew, uh, he produces this little pot and it's got black truffle salt in it. And we're all like, what on earth is that? And he's like, guys, this will change your life. And I was like, that can't be possible. And he was like, honestly, this will change your life. So he gets out this black truffle salt, comes in a tiny little teaspoon, and he's like shaking a little bit on top of each of our bowls. And I'm like, I'm just really hungry because I've not eaten properly in three days, so can we just get going? Anyway, first mouthful, 
I kid you not, if you have never tasted black truffle salt in your life, you need to try it at least once because it was incredible. I was like, I felt like I was craving it for days afterwards. I was like, what What can I get black truffle salt on? Can I put it on Cheerios? Is that okay? Is that acceptable? I was like, this is this has just changed the macaroni game for me forever. And then I found out it cost £5 a pot and I went straight off it again because the glass weeding in me will not allow me to buy salt for £5 a pot. But it changed the game. I was like, this is I've eaten macaroni my whole life and this is entirely different now. For these women, these two sentences changed the game for them forever. He has risen. He is not here. Basically what happens in that moment is that everything that Jesus had been saying for the last three years, suddenly the stamp of truth is on it. I am the son of God. Boom, big tech, that is true. I will rise from the dead after three days. Boom, that is true. Everything that he'd said and done, the healings, the miracles, the casting out of demons, where there was any doubt about it before, he is now alive and raised from the dead and walking amongst people. The game has changed. Their expectations have been blown to smithereens because he is risen. And the implication is now huge because the transformation of the world has to begin. I love when we hear about, we don't see it in this passage, but in Luke chapter 24, we hear about when the disciples see Jesus for the first time after he's been risen from the grave. And it says this, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. <laughs> Can you imagine that moment where they're all like, oh guys, what are we going to do? This is terrible. And Jesus is just like, all right guys, peace be with you. <sighs> they were startled and frightened. That's their initial reaction, startled and frightened. They thought they saw a ghost. And then he says, why are you troubled? Why are there doubts in your mind? Look at my hands, look at your feet, look at my feet, it's me. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones. And when he said this, he showed them their hands and feet. And while they still not did not believe, but now the reaction changed because of joy and amazement. He said, do you have anything to eat here? And they gave him some fish and they all ate together. The reaction changed from troubled and frightened to joy and amazement. The game has changed for the disciples and they go from this group of cowards who are cowering away in a, in, a, in a room, who've denied Jesus, who've been hiding, they're petrified about what's coming next. These same guys who we find quivering and shaking in a room hiding away from the authorities are the same guys that then go on to establish the church in a way that drives it around the world. These are the same guys who only weeks and months later are standing in the face of a death sentence saying, I don't care what you do to me, I am not going to stop talking about Jesus. The game has changed. Lukewarm Christianity is no longer an option. They're either all in with Jesus or they're all out with Jesus. We can't have a foot in and a foot out. It has to be all or nothing. Because the fact that he's risen from the dead means that grace is available for all of us. It means that all our bad decisions, all our mistakes, all the times that we've let ourselves down and when we've let other people down, suddenly where we were fully liable for the punishment of those bad choices and sins and lies before, there is now a way for that to be taken from us so that we can have the closest of uh, most personal relationships with a loving father. And from that comes boldness and courage and confidence 
and, and a need and a desire not to keep it to ourselves, but to share it with the world. So for us as followers of Jesus, I want to ask a question. Do our expectations of Jesus match the fact that he is risen, he is not here, or do our expectations look more like he never left the tomb? What do we expect of Jesus? Because in John 10.10, we're told that in Jesus we have life to the full. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy's business is lies and cheating and pain and suffering uh, and grief and jealousy. That's his business. The king's business is life to the full. Are we experiencing life to the full? If not, are we trying to power through on our own, in our own strength, just trying to make it work? And if that's the case, I would really suggest to you this morning, come and surrender yourself afresh to Jesus. Drop your expectations of what you've known up until this point and allow him to give you a fresh expectation of the impossible made a complete reality when we cry out on his name. Our expectations of Jesus are crucial. And finally, as we move towards the end of this passage, we're left with one final question about our expectations. If we expect a church full of life and not some dead religious organization, and we expect a risen Savior to be moving in power within us and through us, then what is our expectation as a church family for what's out beyond these walls in the Mearns area? He says this, in the passage, the angel says this, don't be alarmed, he said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen, he's not here, see the place where they laid him. And then here's the two words that are our sort of mandate from here. But go, but go, tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He tells them to get up, to go and to tell others. And that's a fascinating change of direction because the whole way through Mark's gospel, Mark is very um, uh, like intent on, on letting us know almost every time where Jesus heals somebody or casts a demon out of someone or does something miraculous, almost without fail, he says, don't tell anyone. Do not tell anyone about this. Go away. Like, don't tell anyone about what you've seen. Like, it's not the time. And almost uh, without fail, all of them go and tell someone about something. Nobody really pays attention to that instruction. But this is like um, the flipping moment. It's like the reverse card in Uno. It's like uh, the moment where it all changes. And it says, but go and tell. But go and tell. Why is it so vital that the good news gets out? Why is it so important that these women begin a chain reaction that becomes almost uncontainable? When I got my first job, um, my main aim for having that job was to buy a car. Um, I'd wanted to own a car since I was like maybe nine or ten and the first Fast and the Furious movies came out. I was like, this is my life now. I just need to own a car. Like, I'm going to do anything I can to do that. So I got this job um, and I was desperate to own a car and I got my first couple of paychecks and I was so desperate to own a car. And I'm just going to let you in a trade secret just now. Being desperate to buy a car is not a good state of mind to go out and buy a car with. Um I've learned this lesson. Um, so I went out. Uh, I went to a place called Paisley. I don't know if anyone knows Paisley, but Paisley's an outskirt of Glasgow. It's basically like the Wild West. They've never moved on um, from about the early 1900s. It's a bit of a bandit country. Uh, and so I went to uh, a, a garage that is 
no reputation at all. It's not like an Arnold Clark or anything like that. I just went to this local garage. Uh, I met this uh, dodgiest of dodgy car salesmen that you've ever met. And I was like, I want to give you my money. What cars have you got that I could give you this money for? And he was like, you want one of these. Uh, it's a Hyundai accent. Uh, the GLS model, the 1.5, not the 1.3. Um, and when we were out on the test drive, the handbrake cable snapped on it. And I still bought it. I don't know what I was doing. He was like, he was like, oh, it's £1,200. And I was like, well, the handbrake cable snapped, so will you give me it for 1100 And he was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. It was like all his Christmases had come at once. So I bought this car, and it was the worst car I've ever owned, other than the fact that I had a complete emotional attachment to it and spent more money than I ever should keeping it on the road. It was the worst car ever. Within the first couple of weeks, I sheared the exhaust in half uh, on my way back from, um, I don't even know where I was coming back from, but it was like sparking at the back. Every time I went over a bump, the exhaust hit the ground, there were sparks flying off the back. The brakes failed on me going down uh, to West Bride. I had to drive down uh, with just my newly fixed handbrake keeping me on the road. It was terrible. And eventually, a couple of weeks later, I went to this uh, scripture union camp that I was helping to lead at in a place called School. Uh, it's near North Berwick, and there's no car park there, really, so I had to park it in the middle of a field. Uh, I left it there. I forgot about it for a week. Uh, we had an amazing SU camp, loads of fun. Came back at the end of the week, and I was about to drive up to Aberdeen for my first date with my wife, Sarah. My first ever date. I was ready to go. Got in the car. I was like, oh, no, you're kidding. Uh, the, the previous owner had fitted it with an aftermarket alarm, which basically was a battery drain. It never, never did anything, but it was dead. It was completely dead. I could not get it to tick over. Most other people had left at this point. So I was like, what am I going to do? I don't have, again, not the wisest. Didn't invest in AA membership. I was like, I'll never need that. Don't need that. So I walked to a local farm and I convinced a farmer to bring his tractor around to the field uh, and he jump-started my car. And tractors are actually really good at jump-starting cars is what I discovered that day. It was on for about three seconds before I was like turning it on. It was like a Frankenstein movie back from the dead. It was like, <laughs> it came back to life. The battery was completely dead and then in moments, everything worked again. This is the crux of the whole Christian faith. Where there was death, there is now life. Where there was a cold, dead body with no hope whatsoever, God intervened. Lungs refilled with air. The cold, uh, stationary blood started pumping around the body and being warm again. And his body rose from the grave. And the echo of that moment now powers from 2,000 years ago all the way through to our lives now. And it will continue to power forward into eternity. The truth of this day and all our days to come is that where there is death, God can bring life. Where there is fear, God can bring peace. Where there is complete unfairness, inequality and injustice, God can bring justice. Where there's anxiety, God can bring security. Where there's hate, God can bring love. So not only does this change the picture for us personally, but it changes the picture drastically for the world that we are a part of. As Christians, it means we can look at the world immediately round about us and see it through almost like the filter of the cross. The filter of the cross changes everything because it's a world ready to be made new by the King of Kings in the same way that we've been renewed and redeemed and transformed and made new. The world around us 
is desperately waiting to be renewed and redeemed and transformed and made new because of what happened on that cross 2019 years ago. I think about some of the places that look hopeless in our world just now and I just wonder what God could do if the church were willing to go diving in head first and not waiting. And like maybe one day, or maybe at some point, maybe when I feel a little bit more sure, maybe when I'm a slightly better Christian than I am just now, maybe when I've finally managed to read the Bible in a year. There are generations of families living within a stone's throw of this building who've known nothing but addictions, gambling addictions, alcohol addictions, drug addictions, that have transferred from father to son, mother to daughter. And actually, where there is death, Jesus can bring life. I think there's loads of people in our nation who are struggling with mental health problems. They're in the very pit of depression or bipolar or borderline personality. And they feel trapped in their own bodies. I don't think Jesus wants people to feel trapped in their own bodies. That's not freedom. I wonder what it looks like for the church to be the kind of people who dive headfirst in, persistent in prayer, not shifting or shaking until we see change happen. Until we see Jesus' miraculous healing power break out so that it's not a once in a lifetime thing that we watch on a video that some person in America once did, but it becomes our consistent reality that every time that we lay hands on someone, we expect that God could do something miraculous. I guess the question I want to ask today is, are we handing our lives over to God and asking, God, where can you use me to make an impact for your kingdom? In the tomb, there was no dead body. Jesus rose from the grave. What that means is that his Holy Spirit is alive and at work within us right now, right here, as you're sitting in your seat, we can't settle for mediocre church attendance and occasional prayer and a, an occasional opening of the Bible. If we know that that is the truth, our lives have to be radically marked by that fact. People around us have to know Jesus because of how we live, because of how we talk, because of how we act, because of how we carry ourselves. Our neighbours need to know over the two-minute conversation we have over bins that there is something different about the way that we are living life. Our colleagues have to notice that there's something different about the way that we treat each other, about the way that we look after one another, about the way that we give generously when the world is desperate to pull everything closer to them selfishly. We have to be marked by the fact that Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is not here. We cannot rest until we see this nation changed. It's not someone else's job. I'm really sorry to break that to you if you're waiting for the hero to turn up with the super Jesus powers like the Avengers. It's not going to happen. We are the Avengers. Yeah, it's on us. We partner with Jesus to see the miraculous break out 
I love this quote um, from Eric Swanson and Sam Williams in their book, To Transform a City. It says this, we should never underestimate how important an individual believer with a changed heart can be and how much impact he or she can have upon the world. Do you know that you can have an impact on the world? Do you know that? Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, led millions and millions of people to faith. His friend led one person to faith. Billy Graham. (laughs) Never underestimate the importance of what you bring to the world. When we leave this room today, what is our expectation of Jesus? What would look different in our lives if we were living with that cross filter of him as the risen Jesus right in front of us every moment of every day? Why don't we stand and we'll pray together.